0: hi everybody and welcome to Lost Explorers my name is Jay David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris it is officially Christmas season and it I could is. not be more excited
1: it is I'm I am too I think the lights are up and I don't know hopefully the mood will will lift too uh I think that's up to all of us to bring that sort of spirit of celebration and i'm glad to hear that you're uh you're feeling that good vibe cuz um despite everything i am too
0: yeah no the good vibes are unkillable anything interesting happened to you this week
1: uh quite quite a bit but i am um, i have to say that in just the last few minutes i started to really Uh, have one of those deep chuckling episodes that I think we really need. It it probably comes from stress and work and uh, fatigue and the change in the weather. But I read a story about Red Lobster, the Red Mm -hmm. Lobster chain. Mm -hmm. And for some reason that makes me, Lisa's father had a very weird sort of fetish thing with red lobster he just
0: Was it the bread? The cheese bread?
1: I I don't I I the
0: cheddar biscuits that's what they're called.
1: Oh no, you, god, he's we're speaking your language. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, I just the notion of red lobster makes me sort of start chuckling and then this story just pushed me right over the limit and I needed it. Because it appears that their ultimate endless shrimp offer has proved so successful with American (laughs) consumers that their profits are massively down this quarter. And I just couldn't stop laughing because I thought, well, first of all, ultimate endless shrimp is just too lovely a phrase, but How could they not think that that might be, you know, a little popular? And on the other hand, it's so popular. I think that says something very disturbing about America. Not that we need any more disturbing.
0: Well, you know, a lot of places um, are doing very cheap food now i've noticed a bounce back a place like mcdonald's for example has <clears throat> it's called a a mcnugget box or something where you, you can get <laughs> two cheeseburgers two fries a drink <laughs> and a and a 20-piece mcnugget for 12 dollars. so i think that they are attempting to combat inflation because you know people at a certain point there are limits for everything um sonic which is an oklahoma-based drive-up burger chain has a yeah those two here. Che- yep. oh do they okay um yep. a a two cheeseburger for seven dollars deal because i do believe that people have gotten maxed out at fast food And they can't people are literally moving away from fast food unless and I do count chains like Olive Garden and Red Lobster as fast food um, unless you have ultimate endless blank could be anything could be cheeseburgers could be shrimp could be fries if you put ultimate endless people are going to show up I'm surprised nobody got iodine poisoning
1: well you know that yes. it's remarkable isn't it but the way you've i mean i love your your background knowledge of these chains and deals of the moment i think what you're saying is absolutely right it makes perfect sense that that would be the aspect of america that would almost of necessity have to be the most responsive to inflation because you know and i think that's maybe a measure of the importance of of what fast food has become in society. I, I can't mm-hmm. think of a better index or indice. Can you?
0: No, I think that fast food prices, I look at the price of bread and you could say cars, but you know, there's cars and there's the housing market, which has also been steadily dipping month over month for the past five or six months, in fact. But The real time, I mean, if you think about it, that's how your everyday guy on the street figures out whether or not inflation is happening or not. I mean, how many times have you heard just a regular guy be like, I remember when you could get a double quarter pounder with cheese meal for $4.50 and it costs $9 now? You know,
1: it makes me think that, um, you know, those old questions asked of politicians, like, you know, what's the cost of milk currently, or, you know, they could usually get gasoline prices, right? I think really just having a good sense of where, you know, basic prices are, would be a really, really important thing to instill in in kids right from the get go. You know, Mm -hmm. to be more aware of that. I I think that could be done in a fun way. And I think all of the they're pieces in a puzzle because you know prices are all connected, and I think that's an interesting I mean, if someone had presented that idea to me as a young child of kind of kid economics of everything being interrelated and prices affecting other prices, I think I might have gotten you know a lot more interested in that. Um, I just, oh, just, you made me know. Think.
0: Sorry the the other thing that's so obvious I can't believe I missed it is the price of gas. Price of gas is a huge one. I feel like most people are really happy when gas is down. It's down here it's down to about 250.
1: Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got nothing to complain about. Jeez. Yeah.
0: I know, I know. And uh well, it's oh, yeah. interesting because when I first got a car, gas was a dollar twenty-eight a gallon. So it's relative, but at the same time, two fifty is really so people in general get into a better mood culturally as a unit if they can get two cheeseburgers, two fries, one diet coke, and twenty McNuggets for twelve dollars and gas for two fifty a gallon. Yeah,
1: it. yeah, it's that's and I don't think there's anything
0: wrong with that, actually. I'm not dogging on that at all. I feel like it's a fine way to measure the health of an economy.
1: Well, it, I guess you know, some people might say it it is the fundamental way. Um, but certainly it's it's at the heart of the question: are we serving the, the economy or is the economy serving us? Um and to what extent is that just a competitive ecosystem that it's really pretty predatory. Or is it a nurturing matrix that is essential to society? You know, it's kind of it's it's gotta be a little bit of both. Um, but mm-hmm. I I I think that we are at, at a moment where the mood would shift enormously by well having I tell you what, my mood would shift to gas or two fifty here.
0: What is yeah. it where you are?
1: 419 holy shit you can pay 450 it's not that wow. far removed from California you know it's bad it really is very bad um it's just and how I, long
0: does it take you to get into Vegas for work
1: 30 minutes but
0: that that eats up some gas then you does you're, you're doing two or three gallons a day.
1: It, it, no, and there's no question about that. It's, um, it, it's not a good look at all, you know, and that's on top of all the other issues of driving. But I think that uh, when driving ceases to become fun at all, and something that you kind of worry about and try to resist, then all of the, the American idea just begins to, you know, and I I don't know. We just had Formula One, you know, the first uh, Grand Prix race here the other week. And you sort of think, how does a motorsport, like a major luxury glamour motorsport function today when we're worried about, you know, petroleum products and stuff? But the car is just too fundamental to us, you know? Yeah, it is.
0: Yeah. And I I like that. I like that. I can, I could talk about that forever. This is uh, one of those small talk conversations that genuinely interests me, but to get to the show, because we have some interesting things to talk about. um, Let's, let's start off as per our usual way by abandon an aphorism.
1: Okay. And I'm going to say, I forgot to give you your words before we. Oh, shoot things on but i I, i've what i'm going to do is if you mention if you happen just to mention one of them without knowing them at all i'm going to freak out (laughs) i'm I'm going to albatross report it you know (laughs) i won't let that opportunity go so sometimes maybe that's a a little thing to throw in there but here's my band for this time and this comes out of a dream and dreams are going to be a big theme tonight. Uh, They're called the undaunted and they appear to be uh, dressed as cowboys and are heavily influenced by old cowboy songs and music, but they're completely wrapped in bandages so that you can't see them at all. And it's not clear if they're in fact all really people, a couple of them could be animatronic sort of devices. It's They've got a kind of, you know, like the residents who are always in masks (laughs) and eyeballs. (laughs) They've got that kind of thing going on. Bandaged cowboys. The other thing that's kind of odd about them is that they're committed to S&M. And their album is called Bull Riders and Mink Gloves. So with this is, again, from the dream. They're bandaged cowboys singing old-style, high, lonesome cowboy music, but with s and themes. And they're doing that because they believe, uh, well, they're kind of neo-Freudians, and they believe that as we've sexually liberated society, supposedly, we've superheated it. So we're creating more sexual energy that needed needs to be managed. And their notion of the solution to that is sort of bandaged cowboy S&M.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. I have a quick thought with uh, our inversion tactic that you just lit up in my brain this idea that the more sexual energy a culture has the more outlets it needs but what if what if repression eats sexuality and the repression monster is hungry and now there's nothing to put in it right oh. so the repression oh. monster is instigating it's instigating weirder and weirder kinks so that it can eat so that it can so that you people will put things in the closet again. The hungry closet.
1: Oh, I love that. I think that's just gorgeous from every point of view. It really does show the power of the inversion technique. You just executed that with just real acuity. And I, I think that uh, a, a trend that's emerging in this show, which I really like, I think it goes back a long way to the very beginning Um, But the idea of of thinking of things and complicated things as monsters, you know, as, as creatures, I think that's a really positive, organic way to look at things. And it also, I mean, it certainly moves away from thinking of it mechanistically, but it gets to a kind of sentience and intent. You know, that only monsters have. It's a beautiful category. I love Mm, it. mm, Thank you. Thank you. Cool.
0: And your aphorism for today?
1: Okay. I've come to think that knowing isn't only not the same as doing, it's often strangely and pointedly not doing and somehow believing we have done.
0: Meaning that the belief in having done is the doing part?
1: Yeah, too often, I think. But, but sometimes I think knowing, uh, it's come out of our our talks about education and our discussion about shifting from a fact-based program of learning to a tool and skill based approach to learning and i really start to think that knowledge itself as 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 we're kind of defining it in in our era is is really quite debilitating to actually doing something and so i think that kind of knowing the right answer I mean, that doesn't sound like being able to perform something or execute it or demonstrate it. it. It seems much more passive to me than that. And that too often, I think, is what we're doing with education. So it's kind of an anti-doing. And in some cases, it's also uh, believing that we've done something when we haven't. So it, that's the double whammy there. Awesome.
0: No, I love that. I think that's great. I, I really enjoy that. He makes me think about, well, it would take too long for me to tell you this story. Needless to say, I practiced something for a very long time. I practiced to perform. You know what? I'll just tell you the story. Why not? It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. The students the students enlisted me to do a uh, a rap at the talent show. <laughs> they roped me in they roped me in the day before and it is a rap by somebody called ice spice who i had never heard of before <clears throat> i had to look up the song i looked up the rap and i memorized it i stayed up uh 2 hours past my bedtime uh memorizing this this essentially uh, you know poem that i was going to do over this beat and I'm ready for my big moment. The school's all there. Uh, I come out from behind stage and I put my mic up to my face. My mic doesn't work for a second. Later on, they told me that, oh yeah, we've been having trouble with some, the, the that mic in particular. Uh, sorry about that. But what happened was because I missed the first two bars of the rap, because this mic went out, I was completely lost. And mm-hmm. so- I sort of I did my best. I did what I could. Uh, but it wasn't I mean it's silly. It's a high school talent. it doesn't matter. but when it was done, I was kind of like, oh, damn. I'd re- I really practiced that. I had absorbed the knowledge. I can I could recite it to you now. I won't, but I could. Um, <laughs> but the the practice of it, the, the walking out onto the stage with the microphone and doing it a few dozen times and accounting for what happens if your mic goes out and the way the microphone is going to feel in your hand and the way your voice is going to sound on the monitors and the way it's going to be when there are people watching you. That's a very different thing from the rote memorization of the poem or the rap in this case. That's what that reminded me of anyhow.
1: Yeah. Well, it's total. I mean, it's, um, it, I, I was sort of just, saw keith richards who's that's amazing he's still alive on the uh jimmy kimmel show and he was doing a guitar riff and kimmel goes well how do how do you do that and Richard says you know i for across the years you know people have asked me and, and i don't i don't know i mm-hmm. i just don't know how i do it and i think that that's the performance aspect of life is is really what we're missing in terms of education. And I think how we just think about life. And it's strange because we see these and we, we truly reward entertainers and athletes, the people who are, so maybe that's why we over reward them is because we're just awestruck by you know, someone being able to actually do something, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> mm-hmm. could be that. That's a very, that's like a red lobster thought. That's, we got to have that phrase now. Red lobster thoughts have certain kinds of implications about society that we may not want to deal with, but are really true.
0: Or an endless shrimp. We could call it an endless shrimp.
1: Yeah. It's an, okay, an endless shrimp idea. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like that. All right.
0: What is my imaginative challenge for the day?
1: Okay. This is interesting. It's, this is a holiday themed uh, story challenge. Uh, We've just gotten through Thanksgiving, which is one, I think my favorite holiday and uh, my niece came down and we went to a beautiful dinner and we also saw a small room Uh, mentalist psychic act at the mandalay which is terrific but your challenge is a story where you're going to go back in time to a moment in my life which is very peculiar and i don't i really don't understand it fully i was six years old and for some reason i was spending thanksgiving day with my friend anthony now i have no reason why that was happening Um, I don't know what was going on with my family. I think that that alone is very peculiar, and I just can't quite get that back. Anthony's dad I knew to be a little bit eccentric. He was a ham radio buff, and he played chess via ham radio with this fisherman in Alaska. And Anthony was a little odd, too. He uh, had collected a lot of snake skins. And could turn his eyelids inside out. I can do that. Can you? Oh, well, there you're on top of it here. Oh my God, you can. Oh, don't do that, Dave. Please. That's 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 just nasty. That's just raw. <laughs> well, you're right in touch with the story. Okay, so it is a blustery Thanksgiving day, and I am over with Anthony, his father, and his mother, who I don't think I had ever met, but I I certainly did that day. I want you to put yourself in my six-year-old shoes and carry on the story from the point where, and I was beginning to have some suspicions that something was up in Anthony's household because there was no aroma of any food cooking. And when we were summoned to the table Anthony's mother seemed a little too happy for my liking, and she proudly and ceremoniously brought in and placed in the center of the table a very cold, slightly blue, pockmarked, raw turkey straight out of the refrigerator, not the oven. So... (laughs) I want you to carry Uh, on the story uh, from there. You've got your cast of characters. You're in my uh six year old shoes. It's a blustery, windy day outside. And you're not really sure why you're with your friend's family on this day, Mm. but you're now very certain of a few things of concern. Is,
0: Is this in Washington?
1: No, this is in the Bay Area, Berkeley. Bay, okay.
0: Okay, cool. Interesting, okay. And can work with that. Now, for the past couple episodes, we have gotten to the end of the show and I've told you some element of my dream. And you've told me, you know, David, I think that this dream idea that I have is pretty big. It needs some space. And so we decided to dedicate the whole episode to it, to it and also to its preamble, which you gave me a preview of before we started recording. So let's start there. This ties into our past few talks about education and uh but I'm interested in your dream studies breakthrough that you've mentioned.
1: Okay. Yeah. I hope I haven't oversold it, but I think if we sort of let some of the uh, separate dream elements enter in, there's, we'll, we'll find the, the bigger theme here. Um, But I mean, what I've been really thinking about for the memory and alertness book is establishing some, better relationship understanding between our night dreaming life and our daydreaming life. I've come to believe that we do much more daydreaming than we really take ownership of. I think that's actually the dominant mode of consciousness during our so-called waking hours. And what I want to do is establish more of an oscillating relationship a dynamic interplay between daydream and night dream rather than some sort of polarity because i think that's that's misguided i've also started to <clears throat> frame the idea that we live in a world that's not best said as a projection of ours I think that's sort of a fairly common view that we, we create the reality we perceive through some imaginative projection. I, I think that's taking way too much credit. I think what we're involved with really is an almost Byzantine level of prediction. Prediction, not projection, constantly. And I've been thinking about the idea that we are more gambling on reality than fully participating in it. And that if we could change that ratio only slightly, we would experience a remarkable expansion of consciousness and alertness. So <clears throat> I've been having an enormously rich period of dreaming lately, and I I was just very attuned to... Um, well the flow of of imagery and and the strength of it and i'm i'm just going to start with a couple of these because they're i think they sort of set the scene for my uh more rational intellectual uh realizations based on them but i have this one dream of an absolutely eerie jg ballard landscape it was just Beautifully rich, weird, undulating dunes and perhaps a beach in the distance. And then a lone older Japanese man. Mm, who was so okay. distinctive looking. I recognized him and later tracked down to my satisfaction. This is who I was thinking of. He played a submarine captain on a voyage to the bottom of the sea episode. And if you know anything about Japanese uh, TV actors who made it any sort of impact in America, you would find this guy on IMDb. He's he's a known dude. He was riding an old wonky tricycle past a concrete holding tank. Okay, then there was a, a distinct shift to Seattle, rich, graphic novel-like scene a notorious section of town where hookers and trans people live a mix of shantytown as in asia and tennessee williams old new orleans laundry lines strung between storage vats and crumbling buildings lattices of fire escapes people like burlesque performers drag queens then a kind of neon graveyard down by this marshy inlet. The whole area is sort of oddly homey for the residents, but sort of hostile feeling for outsiders. I back my late model purple American car up fast. For some reason, I then park and I'm walking into a more metropolitan area. Two strange business-ish men keep me from being run over by a commuter train that suddenly appears and vanishes. They lead me to a boarding house type of building or an apartment building that serves as a kind of resting refuge on a temporary basis. You can rent a room for a few hours. One of the men ages and becomes more cartoon-like. A bald postmodern caricature of a 1940s gangster. He has a switchblade and his moniker is Sid something. A pristine but old fashioned white tiled bathroom in one of the rooms appears. Maybe the place I've arranged to get some rest in. Exotic, forlorn sense of urban pressure. Time overlapping past eras and people. So I came out of that, and I wrote down this: the composite nature of the physical environments seems to mirror the degree of realism in the people. They are in the same register. Mm-hmm. So that's the first insight mm-hmm. I want to show mm-hmm. that you get your response to. Do you? i I hope that sort of setup wasn't too long and then I that I the point came across that there was an a very uncanny blurring yeah. between environment and 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 locality mm-hmm. and the quality of the people
0: that is so interesting and because I I feel like everybody who's listening to this has had that where when someone will tell you a dream, they'll say it was Hawaii, but, but not. Mm -hmm. And it would be so interesting to take those types of dreams and then match them onto the characters who they meet in the dream and how well-developed those characters are, you know, whether they are feel like real living people. It's like, yeah, I had this image of, you know, a skeleton and then nerve endings and then muscle and then, Bone and skin, you know, you know what I mean. Well, bone was already there, but uh, skin, and then you have this full pe- person, right? This this layered individual, and the way that dream, dream determines the level of depth, yes, and and realness, but dream does not distinguish between characters and setting. Yes, right? well so it's said. Both. Yeah. Well
1: said, you've just chainsawed through to what my point. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that is a very, very peculiar realization. And just imagine, as you were describing it, I was thinking about if one had uh, a little bit more, well, more space. But for instance, just supposing you had one full large blank wall where you could start putting this mapping process together. This is where I'm going to get to, is, is visualization of these realizations and kind of creating a graphic design, dimensional art glimpse into these relationships and using you know all one's skills, but also a bit of randomness, to kind of get a little bit of a, a perspective on this that you can really walk around that persists in time, and I think that it would be absolutely fascinating. So that that mm-hmm. really, I'm, I'm glad that got uh, through. <clears throat> My second realization was was a bit more mundane that I think seasonal transitions are absolutely just crossroads moment in in, in dream uh, type. And register. I,
0: I, I like your use of crossroads. Sorry to interrupt, but I like your use of crossroads, which I wish more people would use more often than liminal. I feel yeah, that liminal is overused, and I don't think liminal actually gets to what – but when people say liminal, a lot of the times what they're talking about is a crossroads.
1: Yes. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you I, – I think it's a much – uh, well, it just sounds richer and more physical. And I think it crossroads. also crossroads. Yeah. It, it's just, yeah. it's got that magical quality to it. Um, but I think, yeah, seasonal shifts. I think that first cold snap day and night. Uh, and then I wrote down seasonal affect disorder begins in dreams, which I think is, uh, you know, a simple insight. But I, I really believe there is a, a condition based on that. And I think that dreams are a signal point there. Um, and then I, I wrote down this very, very quickly uh, stri- Well, actually I, I, I dictated this um, still coming out of another sort of round of intense dreams. We often hear the idea expressed something along the lines of dreams can seem more real than life. Dream worlds feel more real. It may be hard to articulate what real means. I suggest vivid is a good substitution, but this is a very common human experience or sentiment as misty and uncertain as it may be. I've personally been puzzling over this kind of experience for decades. At their most acute, these sensations can be exhilarating and vivifying or sorrowful and disappointing like under coming down from the high of a drug experience. There is good reason why there has been a link between hallucinogens and dreaming for all human history that we know. Recently, extremely acute experiences of this sense that dreams are somehow more real than waking life, the dreams are somehow truer, have led me to reframe my thinking. I now ask the question, Is the dream process or experience more vivid? Are the apparent people, places, environments, and situations somehow more real? Or is my sense of self more fully realized? What if I'm more real in dreams? What would that mean and how would it work? So that's a kind of major, uh, sort of clunky, but nonetheless, you know, good example of of inversion on a bigger scale. It's not that the dreams are more real. That's not quite the right way to think of it. What if our sense of self, our participation, our uh, actual engagement is more full and rich?
0: I like that because the first thing that it does is it measures how real something is by its level of engagement because by that metric you know sitting on your couch watching netflix you are absolutely less real than a person who's whittling or dreaming Uh, so first of all that's cool this is also the classic pkd uh is is the dream real or is reality real or is is the virtual more real than reality and I think that what you've done that's really interesting is that you've moved the the burden of proof away from this concept of the real to the concept rather of the of the active. you know, How active are you, how in control? How much are you experiencing life? Because no matter what you call dreams, you have to accept that they are a part of life. They are an experience that you have. And within dreams, certain dreams, not all, they are much more active and much more experiential than waking life. Absolutely. I think also, as a side note, dreams, I would be really interested to see how many people um, who kept dream journals, because a lot of people don't remember their dreams, but people who have built up this muscle the way that you have and the way that I am developing it how many memories they have versus how many memories of dreams that they have. Yes. That would be very interesting because I feel like with the proper, um, all things considered and everything equal, building up that muscle to the point where you actually can remember them at that point, I would reckon that the dream life would be more vibrant and well-remembered the second thing being the most important thing rather than your memory of last Tuesday.
1: Well, I think this is where so much of my uh, research and thinking for the memory uh, and alertness book has, is leading it. It really, there is a profound linkage between night dreaming and daydreaming. And I think that that, Although that's easily said, and we have Row, Row, Row Your Boat songs about, you know, life is but a dream. And many writers from, from PKD to Borges to Lewis Carroll, I mean, we've got a, a, just a natural wonder and fascination and fixation on, on dreaming down the centuries uh, to the point where that may be the ultimate human question. What isn't dream? you know i think that Mm -hmm. back back to the caves um it's it it could be the most the foremost question you know the catalytic skeleton key question you know really uh what isn't a dream but one of the practical extensions and i think it builds on what, what you were saying earlier and this is where i think dream studies if we are disciplined in our dream recording uh, and approach it spirally. You know, we can't do it every night. We have to sort of do it kind of when it happens in an organic fashion. But I think it's possible to develop an inventory, a working inventory of what elements of the waking life experience or consciousness pervade your dreaming. You know, Mm -hmm. this, this really only can be done in a spiral way. You have to, uh, do it as you can and and be happy for what results you get. But I, I think any clarity is, is profoundly energizing. Uh, if we do do this, and this is going to be one of my big projects for the rest of my life, and I've kind of been doing it, but I'm really now thinking of this uh, in a formal, active, ongoing sense. If we did form this inventory, we may begin to see with definition what elements don't, enter dreams, or at least don't feature with congruent prominence. They're not as significant as we might expect. In other words, given the attention we pay them in our daydreaming life. And I think a proper working grimoire sense of this would become something of a mandala map, which we hinted at earlier. And I can't help but think that would be enormously helpful in understanding our waking lives much more fully. And it might entirely reconfigure our sense of waking life, our perspective of it and our participation in it. So I think that this is what we've, we've talked about, the value of inventories before. And I think that this is one that would be really worth pursuing Um, And it would be very helpful, I think now, the more I think of it, to have a spare wall Mm -hmm. to just write and and to sticky note and plaster and paint and, you know, dimensionalize with this inventory of insofar as we can ever get a glimpse, what are the key distinctions between night dreaming and daydreaming consciousness how do those worlds intersect, and how do they not? And I think that would really you know, we may, we might, you know, if that were really applied seriously, we might end up with Venn diagrams, something that clear mm-hmm. of how those two states of consciousness, those two states of dreaming, relate. And imagine if we could just make a small shading difference. You know, we don't have to completely invert them. We don't have to completely exchange contents. Nothing that dramatic. Just a slight reconfiguring of these two Venn diagrams. I think that would be mind-blowing.
0: I think so, too. I I really love this idea. I'm curious what made you choose the mandala. That's an interesting form.
1: Well, I can't think of a... I mean, it's somewhere between a mandala, a kind of labyrinth or maze, which mm-hmm. mandalas mm-hmm. are. I think it's got to have that that dimensional complexity to it, and suggestive of a map and orientation and navigation, but also a a a, a focal point for for meditation and for engagement. You know, you're kind of heading to the heart, you know, and that focal point, other things might sort of clarify or dissipate. And I sort of associate mandalas with, well, I associate them with gardens in in the sense of being big, you know, and being able to walk around and look at it a little bit. And we were saying in, in our last episode that what lies between the memory palace, the structured individual forms of alertness and the management of knowledge and the swamp the region of all the things we don't know is a kind of a garden and it's it's sort of the dreaming meditative garden you know and the mandala is at the center of that
0: sorry i was on mute um the relationship between the daydream and the dream is <clears throat> do they feel experientially different to you or is a daydream more like a mini night dream?
1: Those questions really blur and I think they're excellent and I I think it, it's hard to sort of really uh, prize those apart skillfully. They do seem, both experientially similar because I've really in in trying to pay more attention to my states of mind you know Thoreau once said I have come to watch my moods like a cat Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I don't I don't know if I'm doing that more uh, intensely Um, it feels both good and also a little bit you know it's a little odd. Uh mm-hmm. I, I, I think you don't you can only go so far with that, but uh it has to be explored. Um mm-hmm. but I think there is the way I think of it is that I have come to see much more of my so-called waking consciousness in terms of daydream. If we take the, the conventional idea of, of a daydream. I'm, I'm really just expanding that across the waking hours. I'm saying that there there really aren't that those many moments of rationality and dot connecting and accomplishment. I think there's a lot of of, of daydream uh, And don't you know, let's not forget that dream as with two E's was uh, a very old uh, Middle English word for for noise and that noise and dream have um, a long, long associative history. So there's a lot of noise. I'm counting that as daydream. There's certainly daydream in the traditional conventional sense of reverie. Reverie is a great word. We don't use that anymore. <laughs> I think right. it's people too too medicated and too wigged out for reverie. Um but I think there is not just a a series of of differences. I think there's a unifying way of thinking of the differences as if on another plane or realm. And that's really what I'm I'm beginning to think can actually be articulated over time, uh, building this wall mandala, dimensional chart
0: and that's why the question that i asked you was so difficult to answer because it is the answer to the question that i asked would come through the process of creating this mandala because when you're talking about putting seemingly conflicting ideas on a different plane where they might begin to agree with each other the mandala is making more and more sense to me as we talk because you do you do have to place them you have to physically place them next to each other and see how they begin to interact and then step back and take the whole thing in as a whole. But the thought, so when I daydream typically there are lots of fights. There are arguments. There are also fantasies of, uh, succeeding at things being a hero. Um, (laughs) <laughs> now that I think about it, and I'll just speak for myself, but most of my daydreams are sort of catastrophizing in a way. It's thinking about, you know, these bad things that can happen. And while I do have nightmares, the nightmares don't seem to have the singular focus on the disaster that the daydreams do. Do you find that in your day and night dichotomy at all?
1: I do. I think that that's very interesting. I certainly understand what you're saying. I I think that experience for me isn't quite as prominent, but it certainly resonates. I mean, I, I needed to hear you say that to see how that, this is another reason why the, the sharing of dreams, and people might know the beautiful John Hassel world music album, Dream Theory in Malaya. It is available uh, entirely for free on YouTube. It is one of my all-time favorite bits of music. But it, it was inspired by an anthropology book, which is very contentious, called Dream, Theor- um, Dream Giants and Pygmies. And it purports to be about this tradition within families in Malaya that they would share dreams every morning. And I think critics of that book, uh, he was a real adventurous uh, larger than life figure who wrote it. Um, but it doesn't matter to me how true that is anthropology. Cause I think it's just such a beautiful idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the record that John Hassel made is just absolutely hypnotic. And uh, he often played with Brian Eno. This is not uh, mm-hmm. an Eno uh, joint project, but it's really terrific. But I think just sharing these dream comments, these dream experiences, having the confidence to do that in the same way that you might talk about, well, you're waking day and what happened to you you know one afternoon i think if we felt more inclined to share that with whether that be with a partner or a friend or or whoever we would get a lot of insights back into our dreaming experience and we would Mm -hmm. get a little bit more articulate about that um and the moment you said that, okay, I did get some resonance with that. It wasn't sort of as prominent, I didn't feel, but now as I'm reviewing it, I'm I'm kind of internalizing that and seeing what that means within my dream ecosystem. And I'm I'm my perspective is changing. It's changing as we've been talking, you know. And that's interesting.
0: I love what you said about. Whether or not the sociological recorded history of dream sharing is true or not, it's still prescriptively valid. That is a total lost explorer's mindset. People get bogged down in the, well, actually, these native peoples didn't do anything any different from us. They woke up and they fought and they took a shit, and they ate food, and they went to bed, and whatever, and all the cool art that they made, and all the stories that they tell, it's all just blah, 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 blah. Let's assume that that's true, which it's not. The story is prescriptive. History can be prescriptive. We accept, you and I know that no history is true, true, because you and I know that Every waking moment of every day, everything that we're seeing isn't true, true. But if you take history as <clears throat> story, not even, I don't even want to go so far as to say metaphor. So I'll just stick with story and have it be proscriptive. Well, is wouldn't it be cool if families shared their dreams every morning when they woke up and discussed dreams and tried to divine things from their dreams? It'd be a cooler way of living. So, who cares if it's real or not
1: exactly i mean it, it really I, I I think the the literal sort of minded tight acidness directed at, at that book and that idea of really just it's disappointing um really is but i I think there are, um I think I moved a little bit closer to uh some of the the definitional shadings that need to form more clearly to understand the distinction between the night dreaming mindset and the daydreaming mindset uh i have a nice uh collision polarity juxtaposition when my niece was here we went amongst other things we visited fremont street which you're familiar with Now, I haven't been there in a very long time. And for people who don't know, the Fremont Street experience is a kind of multimedia onslaught. It's in a roofed and arcaded uh, three or four streets, for three or four blocks of Fremont Street, pedestrian only. And the ceiling is just this never-ending intensity of light show and uh, hallucination. There are people ziplining over your head, there are all sorts of people in uh, in costume. Um, there was one woman dressed as a nun with a very pronounced set of boobs with Band-Aids on them. And she was in like eight-inch gold stiletto heels. And oddly, there was no very little interest in having any photos taken with her. But it's just this mad circus, yes. as anyone who's ever been there knows. And it has... Uh, in addition to the, the new fangled multimedia CGI craziness, it it still has all the incredible neon of old Vegas, historic downtown Vegas. So it is quite an outdoor uh schizophrenia market. And I was thinking about and videotaping and just really having major doubts about the people, there was some just really down market people. There were some very, very, well, impossible to describe families and family dynamics. And that resonated with my dream. I thought that I was able to actually photograph some families and people, individuals. And I thought, aha, I'm not going to say they're out of, but there's a link. There's a tunnel between them and the dream life register to some extent. But then I actually had a full blown dream that I managed. I, I, I at least got down the major bullet points because it was immersive and all surrounding. It was a wild adventure train. Okay. and, it moved from environments like African savannas and uh, sort of Eocene, uh, sort of giant fauna, and then suddenly more out into like there was the tra- there's little train cars, and these creatures would would there were giant versions of them that would just come shooting overhead. And there was one I particularly loved. It was a giant bear reaching out for a giant salmon. And there was a dingo style wolf uh, and a tiger. And over to the side, there were what appeared to be murals, but they were really uh, dimensionally deep and they were frozen Vikings. Okay. And then the train stops and it's sort of a, classic lost Americana highway like central California with vegetable stands out. And there was a very distinct group of uh, Mexican hamburger stand kids and an interaction with them. And then I arrived at the end of the train and there was a very odd wedding event going on. And at first my mother was there old and annoying but stylishly <laughs> dressed and then very quickly I was down in the kitchen of this house where some this wedding thing was forming and my mother was back to being quite young and was actually wearing uh kind of cute pigskin shorts then I was involved in the setup of something for the wedding, and there were computer problems. There was an issue with a power cord. And I was back on not the adventure train of before, but more like a commuter train, like the, like a light rail in cities like Portland or Seattle. And a guy was showing me this plastic-making machine that took sort of mush, nanotechnology mush, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and made it into things.
0: I've seen the mush. Yep.
1: So the thing rolled on and on and on. And it was just so incredibly rich. And yet I, I woke up and I wrote down decisively not Fremont Street, only points of clarity thematically animals, fashion, and gadgets. So I thought about that a little while later and I thought there are two interesting things I said, decisively not Fremont street. And then I listed three motif elements. Mm-hmm, from the mm-hmm. Notice it didn't occur to me to think of the thematic motifs of Fremont street. You the know, animals there, flying you know,
0: overhead. Yeah. I
1: mean, I mean, I could have, I could have run those down. I mean, I mentioned them at my, in my sort of my preamble, but I didn't come back to sort of thinking of them, you know, really as the balance there. They kind of blend it all in. So I'm wondering if somehow my attention was very different in the dream, and actually, because I, I pulled out three key items that I think are right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was just paying more attention in the dream.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Something else that <clears throat> something else that might be a piece of the puzzle here is that so when I dream about Fremont Street a lot. Do you? Yeah. Wow. And, and I've also seen the pink mush. I know exactly what you're talking about with the pink mush. When I dream of Fremont Street, it is just the artificial exterior architecture of Fremont Street with none of the fantastical elements that you're talking about. It's a very interesting opposite that almost together forms a full picture because when I explore it, it's always deserted. Nobody there. I am uh, looking at a lot of shuttered businesses and not necessarily post apocalyptic, but just something that has moved on. Society has continued elsewhere. And that to me feels like a perfect puzzle piece fit Yin yang to your more guts and uh, spirit version of Fremont Street.
1: That is absolutely fascinating. And another example where dream sharing may be just so practically helpful because that is a very, very interesting overlay. And I can imagine, you know, like cartoon cells, you could have those overlay. They kind of exactly do, one needs the other a
0: transparency over one, yeah or the other would would make it almost like a like a cartoon, but a recognizable one, you know, the fantastical elements of yours and the more uh, feeling the kind of surreal feeling made real over my mine are always very just kind of haunted and empty. And I wonder if the soul of Fremont Street in my dream world migrated over to yours and like a hermit crab forgot its shell in my dream world.
1: Wow. Well there's that that's that is fascinating. I'm so glad that we have that reference point and I glad I I mean I I think it's important to, I mean, I, I didn't know that at all. I think that's a very, very interesting look at Fremont Street. Um, and it and it becomes strangely emblematic, too, mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. that uh, is itself helpful, I think. Because maybe if we applied our, our emblematic thinking, which is another term that we've introduced in a special way, I think that is one of the keys. Uh, we, for listeners, Dave and I draw a, a very major, just, we're not talking about symbolic connections. Emblematic is very different. It's a non-reducible. It's not something that's not a symbol of anything. It just is itself. And that's something of the vividness that I think that we're associating with dream states as opposed to the waking life experience and between your vision of Fremont street and mine is that's a beautiful oscillation, you know?
0: And why wouldn't ours be connected in some way? Why would a dream world only be the, the domain of the dreamer? right
1: very well said i mean I, I absolutely i mean from from walt whitman to jung i mean we just know that that's mm-hmm. not the case that there is some very very amazing interlacing interconnection interpenetration of dream worlds
0: absolutely um i'm very interested and i hope you do clear off that wall so that we can see yeah dalla Uh, I'm very interested into where this goes, but I want to hear from listeners what listeners think about this in particular. I do think that because we do all share dream, tell us about yours, right? Has any of this resonated with you? we should make this a, a a crowdsourced project.
1: I think that would be fantastic because it would certainly help enormously with building up this inventory of what is different between these worlds and states of mind, mm-hmm. uh, and that would that is such a cool project. It's um, it's potentially endless, but I I think that it, I think as I said, you know, any clarity is startlingly energizing. <laughs> And I think leads to other associations, and we would start getting that Mark Lombardi kind of interlacing, and just you know things things connect.
0: Would you like to hear my Chris some story?
1: Yeah. T- okay. I, I yes, yes. It's, I do.
0: It's very simple, although it's it's some of the most writing that I've done recently, but the concept of it is very simple, but I think that it's elegant and it involves the process of inversion that we talk about a lot. So here we go. I call this one quitting the cold Turkey. (laughs) So I think of the coldness of the Turkey, the coldness of the environment. I think of snake skin, chest from a great distance, no aromas. And again, Cold turkey. The dad of Anthony comes out of the basement and informs the kids that he has discovered a way to cook the turkey over his ham radio. He figured this out after having his Sicilian defense broken by a long haul trucker who played the game in his head. The trucker lit a fire on, or rather, the father lit a fire on the trucker's dashboard with his mind. He'd been on the defense. He'd been trying to keep himself safe. He'd passed this on to his son, who wishes to shed his skin like a snake and spends his day turning his eyelids inward, looking inward. But he found that once he inverted that defense outward, that could light a real fire. So the family gathers around the turkey, the ham radio next to it, and they focus and they focus, but nothing happens. And then Chris begins to think about his mother playing the piano, his whole family happy without him. Why is he not at Thanksgiving? Why is he not there? And he begins to feel a rage simmering in his chest. When he that fire begins to cook the turkey, he realizes the true spirit of Thanksgiving, the reason that families come together and fight and it is because that Thanksgiving is a rageful God that wants wounds broken open and truths laid bare. Without the outlet, without the cold turkey, you get fire. The end.
1: Wow, that was a tour de force, man! It <laughs> was insane. God, I think we got to get some music behind that. Not not a rap, but something. I don't know. Good <laughs> no, rap, no, in one sense, not.
0: Not rapping, not rapping. Yeah. Not quite, not quite,
1: but something, you know, it, 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 I it's a real, do you know, uh, William Burroughs, uh, famous piece about Thanksgiving?
0: Yes, uh, I do. Classic. Yeah.
1: So that mm-hmm. kind of music, more sort of American elegiac, uh, mm-hmm. hobo-ish music, I think. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I dug that. Absolutely. I did. Oh, cool.
0: I'm glad you did. I'm glad you
1: did. Oh, uh,
0: do you have a tip at a tool for us today?
1: I, I do. I do. And, um you know, we're we're always encouraging people. Well, I like the fact that we're always encouraging, generally speaking. Uh, but we're always encouraging new kinds of, of journaling and creative inquiry that can be done kind of, you know, it would be great if they could be done systematically, but they don't have to be. But every once in a while, I think it's really important just in the privacy of your own mind. If you do want to share this practice with other people, if you're fortunate enough to have someone in your life like David is in mine, you can do this. And it's worth trying to cultivate this sort of person. But every once in a while, uh, you know, the whole thing like, well, that's a big statement. You know, narrow-minded, tight-ass people are always sort of worried about that kind of thing. And I thought, well, bugger it, engage in big statement therapy openly, but in the form of a question. And here's the mm-hmm. question that just came up in my mind. What if there were only behavior? You know, just entertain that idea. Don't prosecute that. Don't run away from it. Don't dismiss it. Just put that down and let it resonate around in your mind and think about, well, what what does that mean? What would that mean? Does it mean anything? What, what, how did, where did that statement or that question come from? And what happens to my mind if I let it hang out for a while, you know? So that's my tool. And my tip is, well, I was thinking back to uh, my father talking about his Thanksgiving pants. And I think everyone knows what I mean. They were a little bit sort of loose. They had a little stretchy waistline. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a funny idea to think about. So that was on my mind. And I realized my students often talk about this procrastination okay the problem is we're not very good at it even if we fear that we are we don't really savor it we get stressed we feel guilty we don't luxuriate in our slackness we need occasionally to give into it, submit as <laughs> to a delectable and completely inexcusable fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> and wouldn't that
0: keep people from procrastinating as much as they people procrastinate so much because they give themselves procrastination blue balls where they do it's like, no go all the way in, finish, finish your procrastination. How procrastinated can can you procrastinate on getting up out of your chair? Can you procrastinate on blinking? (laughs) Yeah. How how much can you procrastinate, dude? So just go, just go into it. And also apart from it being this, you know, taking it to extremes thing. I like that. There's a, there's a y-axis or maybe a z-axis depth of feeling involved too, of really feeling the procrastination in a way that might be cathartic.
1: Look, I think it totally would. I, I think it's an example of, and we've talked about this on several different episodes of the need to be both harder on ourselves in certain ways, which we so rarely are, and to really seek accountability and responsibility and discipline. And then in other realms, just to let go completely and not whip ourselves and Mm -hmm. to be accepting. And I think we've got that balance all, all skewed sometimes. And I think if we play around with it and, and kind of, you know, almost in a, a profit loss, you know, tit for tat way of giving ourselves some hurdles to get over and new bars to reach and some real challenges, but then also to give ourselves some real permission to, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, to slime out a little bit, you
0: know, the the procrastination at its best feels like throwing old Polaroids of an X into a fire. It's got that kind of feeling. It's, it's, it's purgative feels great.
1: And- magical, truly yeah. magical, if, yeah. if we let it be. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that isn't kind of a way to sum up so much of what we're trying to do, is, is to rediscover the potential magic elements of so many more aspects of our lives that we don't maybe credit with having that significance or capability.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That definitely got my, my gears going. Well, I would ask you if you had a dream segment, but...
1: Well, I'm. Still, I, I had a really, really rich episode last night. Oh, good, 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 good. I, it was a visualization of. Um, it started off as is kind of visualizing the, this swamp idea of ours, the the realm of mind filled with all the things that we don't know, things we don't want to know, things we ignore, things that we've just are that are invisible to us because we mm-hmm. we have. Knowledge of them. And it began to sort of coalesce into a kind of Banksy Dismaland uh graffiti park. And there was a very peculiar form that was kind of like if you can imagine a cross between a scarecrow and a steam shovel,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's what it was. It was a set, it was a figure that had some dimensionality. It was like a beautifully primitive, raw, uh, 1980s New York graffiti style, you know? Somebody with real art talent, but, you know, like an East Harlem vibe, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. And there was a violence to, the coloring was sort of a a mix of brown, amber, and, and copper, so it had a kind of a suggestion of this wheat god, scarecrow, primitive figure, a little bit of the mystery of of Native American corn husk masks, you know that kind of thing. But but raw, and then some of this steam shovel, mechanistic strength, like a, you know a kind of really primitive transformer creature, mm-hmm. and the thing that was so emblematic about it was I said to myself, if I ever cross the path of that artist, I will know it. And I thought that was a really cool thing to wake up on. And I wish I had the the particular art style Mm -hmm. to enter this, because I can see it clearly but I just can't, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. That's odd because I have some skills, but this is, this is emblematic of, of someone, a style that is not my own. And I think that's a kind of a good place to leave the sort of the dream meditations for this time, because it ties in with our inventory of the different states and I think it, it speaks to a lot of people's experience of very special emblems and symbols and sigils that dreams involve. And that I think moving away is one of my notions of where, I mean, I, I really, it's not that I don't see those and don't mm-hmm. have tokens in waking life. And I know you you do too, mm-hmm. but it's that we don't necessarily associate waking life with those states. They're kind of special and like you've got some on your desk and I've got some on mine, right? Um, but we don't associate this plane with them. Mm-hmm. We, we we need their magical support. And uh, one of the things that I, I wrote down was that waking life, is a separation anxiety from dreaming.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. And I also think that this being art piece that you encountered uh, sounds very similar to what I call in my dreams, the full metal alchemist who comes in in many different forms. Sometimes he's the full metal antichrist if it's a nightmare. Um, But the way that you described this mixture of wheat Corn husk masks and kind of uh, like steam shovel, steampunk almost aesthetics sounds a lot like my Full Metal Alchemist. Uh, mm-hmm. And I have thoughts about that. But like you said, I feel like that's a good note to end it on. Thanks no for listening, everyone.
1: Thanks, everyone. And we are very serious about wanting to hear dream stories, dream theories. We're, we're this is a really important part of what we're doing, and and we hope that what we're talking about um, does strike some chords. But we're certainly interested in in learning more about you know your dreams and you know would
0: people can get with me on uh, they can find me on Instagram brbjdo. You and I don't do this very often, but maybe it's a good idea to do so. And you have an Instagram as well. If people wanted to direct message you on that with their dreams, what is your
1: Instagram handle? I think it's just Chris Sackdison. I think so too. Yeah. But yeah. It got pretty easy to find there. No, that's a great idea. That's a great mm -hmm. idea. And and that also might include the possibility of some visualizations too, which would be Mm -hmm. always, always welcome.
0: Awesome. Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: Yeah. Take care, everyone. Be well, be safe, be sane.